Hey everyone, uh, this is one of those sad weeks where the recording didn't work uh, on the day and Shane did a great job and so I thought rather than making him just <laughs> talk to himself and repeat the whole thing from Sunday, we would make it a little interview format. So that's nice. So it's not just me, Shane's here too. Hey Shane. Hooray, I'm here to make Hooray. sure that Rod said to everyone that I did a great job. So that's all that's all I need to get out of this. Thank you. Um, so one of the functions of the profits, we're doing a profit series for those that have been in a uh, induced coma for the last few months. Um, welcome back. Welcome back. You, you won't doing, believe what's happened since. <laughs> we're doing a, uh, a series on the profits. And one of the functions of the profits that we've been talking about is the way they act as a, a mirror to their society. Um, kind of holding societies to account for what they perhaps claim to believe but aren't actually doing in practice. And so this week or on Sunday and today, it's going to be a very confusing timeline, um, but <laughs> Shane talked about um, a really powerful example of that from, um, from New Zealand. And so I'm going to hand over to him to introduce us to, um, to that that story of some Maori prophets. Yeah, so when we first uh, talked about the series and talked about poets and prophets, uh, this is one of the things that jumped out at me straight away in terms of um, something that I'd like to talk about uh, because there is a story in New Zealand history um, that is becoming more and more prominent in the kind of museum consciousness, uh, but I wasn't aware of it until only a few years ago. Um, so my entire life in New Zealand, 30 years there. I never heard of um, Parihaka, and I'd never heard of Tupiti Orongamai or Tohu Kakahi, um, who were two Māori prophets uh, who emerged uh, sort of during and just after the New Zealand land wars. Um, so when were they? Yeah. So this was 1840s, um, was the New Zealand land wars, um, 1840s, 50s, 60s, kind of, depending on where you start counting in that, um, and and also earlier, uh, and Treaty of Waitangi, which is the treaty between the um, Crown and um, the Māori people. Again, um, there's, that's a long, complicated story in its own way, um, partly because there's two versions of that treaty and they differ slightly. The Māori version differs from the English and different people signed different ones and so there's a lot of contestation about what actually should be followed through on um and yeah. also the government <laughs> still didn't really intend to follow through <laughs> anyway um but that's another whole that's a whole other story but um so it, it kind of emerges out of that um effectively what, what's happening in the context of the country is that the government has kind of um agreed to the treaty and Māori have as well, but the government, um, as they run, quote unquote, run out of land, <laughs> uh, confiscating more and more land um, to put soldiers and settlers on uh, and using that to um, also fund their coffers by selling and putting long-term leases on that stuff. Also promising Māori reservations as well and replacement for some of the land that's taken, um, but also not following through on that. So... So any day now, you'll, we'll move you from where you are and we'll give you a new, lovely new place to live. So if you can just get off now, um, that'd be great. And we're sure we'll be able to find somewhere for you to go soon, um, but didn't actually follow through on that. So 
out of that context, um, these two Maori prophets emerged. And yeah, we will. I used a video from um, stuff.co.nz, New Zealand news site, um, which is uh, it's quite upbeat um, <laughs> and funny, uh, which makes it really appealing and great. Uh, but it also, I was kind of aware playing it on Sunday, it kind of risks uh, missing the that fact that for the community of Parihaka, this is a um, a memory that carries immense, immense gravitas and grief in it. Um, mm. So, yeah, I'll insert the audio from this video here and I'll put a link on Facebook if you want to watch it too because it's quite well produced and it goes for about six minutes um, and then we'll kind of give it some context after that. Now this is the story all about how a peaceful Māori settlement was raided by government troops. You've heard the name Parihaka. You know the name Parihaka. On November 5th, 1881, 1,600 troops invaded the Taranaki settlement of Parihaka, a place that had come to symbolise peaceful resistance to the confiscation of Māori land. The story of Parihaka is more than just that one fateful day. It's part of a larger kōrero about Taranaki, the New Zealand wars, and land theft in Aotearoa. After the first Taranaki War in 1860, the New Zealand Parliament introduced the New Zealand Settlements Act, which meant that they could confiscate Māori land to punish iwi that were deemed to have rebelled against Her Majesty's authority. They also introduced the Suppression of Rebellion Act, which meant that any Māori fighting against British forces could be arrested and detained without trial indefinitely. Now, I'm no lawyer, but I object on the grounds of massive stigma. Under this act, 1.2 million acres of Taranaki land was eventually confiscated, and a lot of it was handed out to European settlers and troops that had fought in the wars. But heaps of those troops didn't stick around. So, the peaceful village of Parihaka was established on unoccupied but confiscated land around 1866 by the Māori leaders Te Fiti Orongomai and Tohu Kākahi. Let me tell you a little bit about these two. Their descendants believe Tefiti was identified early on in his life as having a special authority in teaching and prophecy. And his relative, Tohu, was thought to have the same gift. Some descendants believe in an ancient prophecy foretelling the appearance of two birds of knowledge appearing on the peak of Taranaki. We've had heaps of prophets in our history, eh? Pōte Tauti Whero Whero, the first Māori king, Tafiao, his son, Te Kōtiari Kirangi of the Ringatū movement, Rua Kenana of Maunga Pōhatu, Mere Riki Riki, the Kuia of Ngāti Apa, and William Tahupōte Kiratana of the Ratana movement, just to name a few. So anyway, Māori who'd lost land were forced to relocate, and many of them were attracted to the sanctuary offered at Parihaka. There, Tohu and Tefiti taught their followers about resisting land confiscation, but only through peaceful resistance, just like Gandhi and Martin Luther King many years later. You could call them the OGs of turning the other cheek. When the government surveys came and started to carve up the land in the Waimate Plains, just southeast of Parihaka, Tohu and Tefiti sent men out to pull up the surveyors' pegs and plough the lands in protest. Like, take that land, surveyors. I'm going to plough the land and plant some kumara all up in your business. The thing is, not only did they kind of think that the confiscated land had been returned to Māori because it had been unoccupied for so long, 
Also, the government had not made any plans for the reservations of land that they had promised to Taranaki Māori when they confiscated the land in the first place. So many of Tohu and Te Whiti's followers were arrested for ploughing. That's right, ploughing. And they were sent off to prison in the South Island. Throughout the West Coast, communities that were getting smaller and poorer continued to make the trek to Parihaka, and the campaign of protest and ploughing continued. All of this, not getting what they want, tended to make the crown a bit hoha. And so the native minister, John Bryce, decided it was time to take things by force. Like, why is he native minister? To be honest, he doesn't sound like a native. He doesn't sound like he cares that much about the natives. In fact, a few years earlier, he set some troops on a group of 10 and 12 year old Māori boys and killed a couple of them. What a dick. On November 5th, 1881, 1,600 armed constabulary and volunteer troops surrounded Parihaka. The 2,000 inhabitants offered no resistance. In fact, they sent children out to greet them with food and with songs. Tohu and Te Whiti were arrested along with many of their followers. And over the next few weeks, the rest of the residents were evicted, their houses destroyed, and sadly, many of the women experienced terrible things at the hands of the troops. Tor and Tefiti were arrested and charged with wickedly, maliciously and seditiously contriving and intending to disturb the peace. What? They were imprisoned in New Plymouth and then in Christchurch and then sort of paraded around the South Island for six months to be shown all the amazing achievements of British colonisation. Weird but true. They continued to ask for a fair trial but were never given one. Two years later, they were allowed to return home to Parihaka, still destroyed from the invasion. There, they continued their campaign of protest through ploughing confiscated land. Tohu died in 1907, and it's said that Te Whiti mourned his death right up until the day that he died, only 11 months later. So, fast forward to June 2017, and then Attorney General Chris Finlayson gave an apology on behalf of the Crown to Taranaki for the treatment of those at Parihaka. He acknowledged the men, women and children that responded to the tyranny of the Crown with dignity, discipline and immense courage. Even here in Aotearoa, we learn about amazing leaders like Martin Luther King Jr and Mahatma Gandhi. And I think Tohu and Te Whiti should also be household names. I also think November 5th should be changed to commemorate Parihaka instead of Guy Fawkes. So, yeah, given given people are familiar with the basic outline of the story, um, fill it in for us. So, um, I know, what's your story with it? Like, when did you first come across it and um, how did it become kind of powerful for you? Yeah, I came across it a few years ago because in 2017, um, as acknowledged in that video, there was a um, formal government apology and reparations process. Um, and so it kind of hit mainstream media then. Uh, and so I, yeah, engaged with the story through a few articles and did a bit of my own research. And as I'll explain a bit later, there's a little bit of my personal history interwoven into that story as well. Uh, so yeah, it was only, yeah, maybe six years ago that I became aware of it. Uh, but there's a big push within New Zealand at the moment to make it a public holiday, um, to make November the 5th party Haka day. Uh, so yeah, when I, I think I engaged with it um, years after I had started stu studying liberation theology. Mm. And so 
for me, the story stood out, you know, and really impacted me because it's like a homegrown um, version of liberation theology, which primarily comes out of kind of um, Latin America um, and some Southeast, some Southeast Asian countries as well, is where liberation theology is kind of traditionally recognized. But um, there are some great New Zealand theologians and Maori theologians kind of um, integrating this into the story of liberation theology because these Maori prophets um, did what good prophets do, which is stand up for truth and justice. Uh, and for them, that came through the form of community formation and nonviolent resistance. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it's perhaps helpful to know that um, Tifiti um, and Tohu were, they kind of have two streams um, of tradition. So they carry, they were educated by Māori elders and raised in Māori culture um, and with Māori spirituality. Uh, and they're also deeply shaped and influenced by scripture. Um, they were um, taught to read and write. Um, on missions um, and by Maori lay preachers in the Wesleyan tradition, and also a Lutheran um, missionary as well. And Te Fiti had taken part in the land wars, which is the Maori armed resistance, um, and, but decided to give up on violence as a tool of resistance. Um, do you want to read the quote that's there? Yeah, yeah sure. Me? Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is what he said kind of about his decision. Um, to make non-violent violence a priority. And it's, yeah, as referenced in the video, like this was an inspiration to Gandhi knew of Parihaka before um, before like the salt march and before his non-violent action. And yeah, this is like, you know, 70 or so years before. So it's quite incredible that this is largely unknown, but an inspiration to, to him. Hmm. Uh, yeah, so here, here's what he said. Though some in darkness of heart seeing their land ravished, might wish to take arms and kill the aggressors. I say it must not be. Let not the Pakehas think to succeed by reason of their guns. I want not war, but they do. The flashes of their guns have singed our eyelashes, and yet they say they do not want war. The government come not hither to reason, but go to out of the way places. They work secretly, but I speak in public, so that all may hear. Guns and powder shall no longer be the protection of man. Our weapon is forbearance, patience, non-resistance. God is our refuge and our strength. Yeah, so th that is like a classic example of um, holding up a mirror <laughs> um, and saying, you know, you say you come in peace, you say you don't want war, you say... Um, that you're doing one thing, but we're going to prove that you're doing another. And we're going to pr prove not not by backing down, but by just standing our ground. And we're going to prove it not by um, fighting fire with fire, but actually kind of reveal, make, forcing you to reveal what it is you're actually doing and not be able to make an excuse for it. I think one of the things that Pitti realized in this process was, A, how horrific war was, but B, also that if you fight a war, and then lose it, history will say you lost the war. <laughs> um, what they did through this, this this act of peaceful resistance was made the government show their hand and they the government couldn't <laughs> pretend that they were doing otherwise. Like they couldn't pretend they were putting 
down and armed resistance. And so there's pictures which I'll post up as well of them, you know, showing up with with you know <laughs> masses of guns and fifteen hundred soldiers in there. And 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 they got met by children. Um, they got met by the cicadas when they invaded. Um, so by this stage, Parihaka would have had maybe two and a half, three thousand people at it. It was up to five thousand um, at various stages as more people got pushed off different lands and then came together there as a safe haven. Um, and it was a complete self-sustaining community at that point. Um, yeah, and to Fiji said, like, the Pākehā have some, which is um, European New Zealanders, so I'm a Pākehā person, um, the Pākehā have some use, useful technology, but not the kindness of heart to say that Māori also possessed much great technology, which, if adopted, would lead to stability, peace, and a great new society. So he, what he's saying there is that, like, you know, like Parihaka is evidence of Māori community in all of its flourishing, and we're not denying what... Um, European settlers have to offer, um, but we're not also going to say, "Oh, thank God, you brought civilization to us, and you taught us how to, you know, live in community and wow, houses." Um, as as you would have seen in the in the video, they took to Fiti and Tohu when they got arrested on a tour of the South Island to see all the wonderful things that European society yeah. had brought to New Zealand, um, as if. Fiti and Tohu were going to go, oh, thank God, like, you know, <laughs> we finally found, you know, heaven, we found paradise on earth, like, while their men were being locked up in mass imprisonment, like, mass yeah. incarceration, some of them, you know, dying of illness while they're there, like, Tefiti and Tohu had seen the underside of European yeah. society more than they'd seen the benefits in the process of being kicked off their land and in the process of, you know, so the, the, the kind of government blatant, like, I don't know, like propaganda campaign of coming like, sure, or, or sure, we're violent and all your men are in prison. But, you know, have you seen our bridges? Like, yeah, yeah, not that yeah. good thing. Yeah, no, it does, yeah, it does remind you of the life of Brian, doesn't it? Just that thing, what have <laughs> the Romans done for us? And it, it, yeah. as, you, as you were speaking on Sunday, yeah, I was thinking about, you know, Jews under occupation or, yes. and the, all of their different kinds of ways of, reacting to mm. occupation you know violence mm. or withdrawal or whatever and mm. that um that incredible reading of turn the other cheek that mm. i only came across in my 30s i think of of it rather than being it a passive act it being a way of doing exactly what these guys were doing of exposing mm. the mm. violence inherent in things and saying well you can slap me with the back of your hand like a slave, but I'm going to turn the cheek. So if you want to hit me again, you have to hit me like a man. And um, yeah, it, it just, it, yeah, it's, it's incredibly striking the way they um, mm. took the example of Jesus and, and turned it against yeah. the, uh, their yeah. oppressors. Mm. Yeah. And even just that interesting take of going, you know, like in that quote of just going like, we're, yeah, we're not we're not denying that you have something to offer. Like the the reason Māori mm. signed a treaty is because like like when Māori first received European um, like uh, colonizers, they like they they happily gave over land and mm. sold some land, and like they they kind of saw it as being a potential really great collaboration. Um, yeah. Of course, they see land differently in terms of sovereignty and things like that. Like they never intended um to give over give over sovereignty but they 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 were open to what participation collaboration would look like and so this isn't kind of like a um 
my way or the highway deal. Like, yeah, they they acknowledge that, you know, there's stuff in both of these cultures that could be beautiful and good and together um, there could be a great new society and that mm. would be wonderful. Um, but the, the, the constant greed and the constant, um, you know, you know, <laughs> The constant need for growth um, means that there's it, it, it's never enough. You know, with the story of the West is you know there's yeah. never enough. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I think what what appeals to me so much about the story as well is how cheeky it is, mm. um, and I love I love that. Uh, so you might not have caught in the video like quite how to work, but basically to to get the land. Um, Government would send out surveys because you have to kind of like map it out, like and have it all in charts and stuff, um, so that you can work out which portions get sold and, you know, without record keeping, keeping you can't actually manage land in, in terms of ownership. Um, so they would send out surveys and then then you know Tafiti and Tohu would send out men in the middle of the night to pull up their pegs. So the surveys would do all the work, would map it all out, would work off their pegs, and which is like a complicated thing um and then come back the next day to carry on and all the pigs would be gone and just look like land again and so there's kind of defiant that's kind of cheeky defiance of, of rather than um you know trying to attack or beat up the surveyors or kick them off the land of just letting them do their work and then undo it then just frustratingly undo it in the middle of the night um and then the same with the crops so when they eventually kind of like lease some of the land to settlers they got it surveyed out um because they kept arresting them in um that would pull up the survey pegs. I think like 450, 400 of them were arrested um, and imprisoned and, and sent to the South Island. So that's like a lot, a good chunk of the village um, mm. were, were sent away in the actual like pre-invasion. Uh, but when they when the settlers finally planted crops, they would go out in the middle of the night and they would plant kumara. They'd like rip up the European crops and they'd plant sweet potato kumara. Um, in the nighttime, and then that would get ripped up in the daytime, and then other crops, and then let the crops grow for a bit, and then they come and they plough up again. Mm. Um, yeah. So Tohu said um, only men of mana were sent out to plough, as these acts of trespass were not treated. Oh, so this is a quote from a website: Only men of mana were sent out to plough. These acts of trespass were not treated. They required courage and restraint. Common opposed were not to resist. When asked what should be done in the face of violence, Tohu answered. Gather up the earth on which the blood is spilt and bring it to Parihaka. Mm. So this was this was courageous. This was brave. They knew they knew that they would get arrested. And getting arrested isn't just spending a night in the cells. Like lots of them got sent mm. away from their community to the South Island. They left women and children behind. They left their families behind. Um, so that you know, it was it was of no small consequence. But I love I love how defiantly cheeky their responses mm. they felt it's like it's still such creative forms of resistance and yeah, yeah i love that that was yeah that's what really struck me that level of creativity and imagination and courage that's required to for genuine mm -hmm. um, non-violent resistance like to, mm. for it not just to be passivity but actual resistance um yeah, yeah extraordinary levels of cheekiness creativity imagination and courage yeah yeah and i think they had a sense in which well, i imagine they had a sense in which because in some ways this this act of resistance and this kind of like prophetic like theater mm. was going to be a it was going to be a, a legacy story i think they knew that if they if they lost the story would still be told so what story is it that they're writing and so yeah. they wrote they with their actions they wrote a story which as we'll get to 
of, in, in a minute, they wrote a story which a hundred years later is still being told and admired and laughed at and grieved and mourned and all of those things. Like they, they, they it, like if it was to become a piece of theater, like you mm. could, you could write, you, you could write a kind of um, satirical sketch <laughs> about it and it would be, it'll be hilarious. It'll be hilarious. Um, yeah. There's something, yeah, there's, there's something so great about the way that they, they yeah, they, they didn't just roll over. They didn't just back down. They didn't just, you know, name it. They actually enacted um, mm. something which, yeah, which was going to stand the test of time, which I think is really cool. Yeah. 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 And again, echoes of that, inspiration of that in Gandhi, you know, walking across India to the sea to make some a tiny bit of salt to defy yeah. the British salt tax that that yeah that incredible sense of theater and a, a mm. building of momentum and yeah what's what's the story that is going to be the legacy of of this and yeah and the power yeah of, and, the, power yeah, and the power of it yeah yeah and I think like yeah as in terms of going like what would it be to be a prophetic community mm. um again like you, you, like <laughs> lots of the prophets were very theatrical people <laughs> in the in the Hebrew Bible, and some of them were just kind of jerks, you know, like Zechariah going and grabbing me by the hair and punching him in the head to mm. <laughs> tell them they've married the wrong. Like that that's the kind of the, the kind of angry prophet is the kind of prophet I think a lot of us think of when we think of prophets, and then the, the weird prophet is kind of the other. But the cheeky prophet and the theatrical prophet I think is like also great models of being able to point out the ludicrousness like i've thinking been thinking about kind of you know i love like trisha hersey's nap mystery kind of the opposition to capitalism by drama and going i'm going to stage nap spaces in in the middle of the day in busy parts of the world <laughs> yeah as a kind of like blatant protest of just going like have you ever thought about the fact that you're not allowed to nap like what are we doing with our lives where naps aren't possible like mm -hmm. naps are being part of naps and daydreaming have been part of all of human history for such a long time and mm -hmm. the, the fact that we've created a system where where a nap is like just such a shock and a surprise and a luxury or a guilty pleasure like that's that's ludicrous so yeah like again that kind of like cheeky theatric of going like how do you reveal the system in a way not just by describing it but by yeah enacting something that reveals it yeah yeah and it's i mean it's something that we've talked about before and we'll possibly talk about again in the series but that sense of of sustainability in prophetic resistance of you know mm. when you introduce a sense of community a sense of play a sense of of joy as mm. well as courage and sacrifice i mean these these um this community sacrificed an enormous amount mm. but mm. at the same time trying to yeah trying to sow threads of of play and joy in there mm. to make it sustainable yeah. to make it sustainable and it, yeah it's yeah and, and, and yeah one one element of that like if you like again to describe the party Hutter community but it was because it was a large 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 self-sustaining village um there were kids everywhere and they were and they tell stories of like going into 50 trying to like hold meetings with the 
with the elders and make decisions about you know this stuff which is really serious and yeah. crucial and how to work out how to sustain losing so many of your men in the process and what to do during non-violence but in the background there's the kids everywhere and they called them yeah. the cicadas or the crickets yeah um and and so these these kids were just kind of known for being like playful and talkative and fun and chatty and always buzzing around and kind of like Tohu and Tafiti kind of like at times kind of playing up being grumpy old prophets, like, you know, yeah. pseudo grumping at them about being quiet and stuff and about how the kids like just kind of respond with cheekiness and noise. And they're always, just always in the background chirping, like chirping away. Mm. And when the troops turn up, um, it was the cicadas. It was the kids that met them with bread and with food and with water to welcome them into the yeah. village. Um, and yeah, like and I, I think again, going here you are with your guns, mm. here you are turning up, preparing for violence and we will meet you with children inviting you into the space. So if you're going to, if you're going to do this, then, it, then let's not pretend like yeah. what you are disrupting is not a war zone. It's, homes and lives and community yeah yeah um so that yeah let's talk about what happened when the troops showed up i'm just aware you know i think about other podcasts where they give content warnings for parents mm -hmm. listening with mm -hmm. kids before we move on to this this might be something you want to listen to before you not with kids or before you're sharing it with kids um yeah, yeah, so yeah. what happened when the troops yeah, so yeah, con content warning there. There's like we will reference um, sexual assault in this um, because it's a really important part of the story and part of how of kind of the not the resolution, but part of the healing of the story is the stuff being acknowledged. So um, again, I'll read some text from one of the websites the, um, telling the history of it. So the leaders of Parihaka, along with hundreds of their people, were imprisoned in the South Island. Um, oh, sorry, actually. It's, <laughs> Sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. So the, the government troops showed up, 1,500 soldiers of the um, constabulary, um, which are kind of, you know, kind of police kind of soldiers. Um, they showed up with, um, like, heavy heavy weapons, a bunch of, like, wheel guns and stuff, and all of their weapons. And they were met by, they were welcomed onto, um, um, onto Parihaka by the cicadas, by the kids. Uh, and then they came through and then started destroying the place. So they because they didn't meet armed resistance they just started arresting people um yeah they so they sent you know like pretty much all of the men like hundreds of them to the south island um many of them free and freezing cold caves where they died from exposure disease and malnutrition um the destruction of Parihaka began immediately it took the army two weeks to pull down the houses and two months to destroy the crops Women and girls were raped, leading to an outbreak of syphilis um, and unplanned births in the community. So there are descendants in New Zealand of the assault on Parihaka. Um, so, yeah, that, that history still lives with us um, alongside all of the trauma. Um, people have suspected of being from other areas of the country were thrown out. Thousands of cattle, pigs and horses were slaughtered and confiscated. And Fort Rolleston, which is like, you know, uh, um, an army fort was built on a tall hill in the village. Four officers and 70 soldiers garrisoned it. And so when you rip that many men um, out of a community, you leave hundreds of women and children vulnerable roaming the lands. And 
the fruit of this was that once again, um, there were settlers and soldiers who were given land and were given cheap leases on land and built their wealth um, on on the backs of that. Um, so uh, New Zealand politician, um, Right Honourable Mahara Okeroa, um, is a descendant of the survivors. And so he was part of the um, reparations and, treat and um, apology process. But um, his, his quote is saying, it resulted in us being a people without any rights at all. It assigned to us the status of being a non-person on our own land, under our sacred mountain. It was the darkest day in New Zealand history. Um, years later, Te Fiti challenged Prime Minister Richard Seddon. Um, so it was not long before Te Fiti died. And he said, he said to him, which one of the kings of this world will carry out this deed to give dignity to the orphan, to the dispossessed, and to the bereaved? Which one leader will fulfill these three demands in our time? And that's a direct quote from Isaiah. So again, the many of the Maori prophets, when they encountered the Hebrew scriptures, saw themselves in the Hebrew prophets and saw them, like as with all liberation theology, saw themselves in um the people of God in exile. And, you know, some of them took on the names of like Moses and Jeremiah and stuff um, yeah. as well. So yeah, he, he's he's standing in that prophetic tradition and turning it back on the so-called Christian state. Because this is the thing, like the, the state was the representative of civilization, quote unquote, mm-hmm. and Christian and Christianity. Um, and so here they are being confronted with Christianity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um so fast forward to, um, well, it's not really fast forward. There were, I think you said there were about nine apologies offered, but offered in a way that was rejected because mm. they weren't sufficient to address mm. what it can play. Mm. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so that's one of the fascinating things about this is that the government um, had tried nine, nine separate times um, from nineteen ninety one, I think it was, onwards to apologise to Party Haka. And Party Haka... Which so Tafiti and Torpu returned to Padihaka and then died at Padihaka and carried on um, ploughing and surveying, um, picking up them, pulling up survey pigs. Uh, and, but the Padihaka community um, carried on and is still in existence today. And so it's still a living community of nonviolence. There are three um, separate motais on the site. Um, you can still visit it. They do. They tell they once a month you can visit and get, be educated in the story of Padihaka and being trained in nonviolent resistance and stuff. Um, which is pretty amazing. So the, in the in the 90s, the government tried to apologise, um, but often in the ways that governments do, where they kind of go, you know, oh, this is getting uncomfortable. Um, uh, I think I kind of referenced it being like a bit like a teenager's apology, like, say sorry, sorry. <sighs> You're not even my real parents anyway. Like that kind of like classic, <laughs> like, apology that's not actually an apology and then and they got more and more sincere and added more and more detail but Parihaka kept on refusing them saying you haven't listened to the story of Parihaka yet you haven't sat with the discomfort you haven't sat with our pain we need an apology that um, comes from a a person of the same status as um, the native minister at the time who made the decision to invade Parihaka so it needs to be an equivalent senior person from within the government there needs to be a process of listening there needs to be reparations there needs to be um the apology needs to actually detail what it was that happened in the process and one of i guess my um one of the things that really hit me i think listening to um the story and i'll I'll, I'll post up um the podcast 
which is actually only from last month um, online. But one of the things that really hit me in the story was that it was a um, national minister, a right-wing minister um, in, in New Zealand who took on Parihaka and the Parihaka apology and the reparations process um, and took it really, really seriously. And he um, was the one who fought for and made sure that the acknowledgement of the rape um, and sexual assault um, on the women and girls of Parihaka was actually explicitly named in the apology because in his words, like this is stuff that doesn't get acknowledged. It doesn't get said out loud, but it happened. And mm -hmm. I don't ever want anyone to deny that it happened. Um, and I think that that is, yeah, like you can't actually get footage of the apology at Parihaka because it's too sacred and they ask not to record so they've got you, you can get a copy a copy of it um but there it was a kind of a, a dialoguing process even on the day between parihaka community responding at like you know within maori culture like to be on a marae to be on a um in a maori village there's protocol about who gets to talk when and it's call and response there's a, a bunch of different um customs in terms of um how like the oratory is um is, is um, like managed, and so the the apology got responded to, and particularly that bit that um, the women of Parihaka um, responded to that part of the apology with a poi dance, which is like a, a sacred a sacred dance, um, and and it's full of grief. Um, and yeah, they actually got to got to respond to that concrete thing being said, which I think is just really powerful because again. The story of war is often the story of men, mm. um, uh, but this is actually a story of, of community. This is a story of whole lives. This is a story of women. This is a story of and children as well. Um, yeah, so I thought that was really, really beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think moving on to kind of impact for you, the impact for you, there was, um, there's another clip I think that we're going to, yeah, yeah. So I'll just frame this clip. Um, this again yeah. is from the same um, podcast, which is actually at a, a, the Featherston Book Festival um, last month. And they had their um, representatives of Parihaka. They had the minister um, who drove the process on behalf of the government. And they had, and it's, it's, it's an incredible and beautiful four part um, discussion. Yeah, it's quite remarkable. One of the people they had there was a um, university professor called. Um, Richard Shaw, Professor Richard Shaw um, from Massey University, who grew up in Taranaki on family farms uh, and held that classic story that uh, many of us do of kind of like hardworking farmers in your history. Um, and in time, um, it's actually only a few years ago, um, actually encountered um, a piece of information that he hadn't come across yet. So I'll we'll play this clip, but um, it's worth knowing that he's just spent the last few minutes detailing how the land in Taranaki around Parihaka was divvied out to soldiers um, and um, was taken off Māori communities. Um, and kind of he was kind of naming and, and acknowledging the way in which um, the government kind of just rolls over and rolls through the land and divvies it up in its own way without any recognition of how the land's been used in the past or what is sacred and what's not, um, and in ways that benefit white settlers and soldiers. Um, so yeah, we'll play this this clip here because I thought it was quite beautiful. Yeah. 
what I've told you, uh, I knew nothing of until I was 54. I'm, I'm 59 now. Uh, I grew up with many stories of the coast. They, they all involved the Catholic Church, of which I was and to some extent remain a member. They involved rugby. My, great -grand my grandfather was a secretary of the Taranaki Rugby Union for He's a life member for 45 years. He managed the team during the Great Rainfield era, the 1950s. Um, so I knew a lot of stories about footy, farming, Latin masses, confession. And I didn't know any of the stuff that I've just told you until I was 54 when my father died. Some wheels fell off some things. And, uh, and I saw, uh, looked at and saw for the first time a photograph that has been in my parents' house for many years which is of 15 men, one of whom is dressed in a suit. The photo was taken in 1881. It's at the Rahutu Domain, which is two kilometers away from Parihaka. It's a rugby team. It's the armed constabulary coastal rugby team. The big guy in the middle of the back row, the captain of the team, the guy holding the ball, he's my great-grandfather. So I look at this photo for 54 years and I don't see anything until the day that I did. But I was 54 when that happened, so when I think about, when I reflect about, when I have conversations about a kind of clunky term, Pākehā privilege, this is what it looks like. Pākehā privilege means I get to look at that photo for 54 years and not even see it. Pākehā privilege means I get to drive down the Great South Road and admire the view. What I don't see is the trauma scape that Rachel and Maria Tumakin have written about. Pago privilege means that the combined sale of three of the two of those pieces of land uh, to my family comes in contemporary terms to about four hundred thousand dollars. None of it goes to Marty. Uh, Pago privilege means that my people establish themselves on the basis of land taken from other people. They establish communities. They're good people. They work hard. They come from Ireland. I have land records going back 600 years to the arrival of Oliver Cromwell's new model army, at which point my Irish ancestors are dispossessed themselves. The land in a small township called Ballynagriana, which is in the east of County Limerick, is taken by the English. So my people know what it means to be dispossessed. My people know what it means to be tenant farmers. My people leave that place and they come to this place and they remake themselves. They shed the identity of poor Irish tenant farming. They remake themselves as a new thing. They remake themselves as New Zealanders, but they do so on the basis of the dispossession of some of the people alongside of whom I sit today. Kia ora. So... I'm just wondering, I think maybe the last thing was just talking a little bit about your own connection. Yeah, yeah. So I need to do more work on this. Um, but my dad went through, a, his many dads, um, our parents' age do, went through a genealogy buzz, <laughs> you know, <laughs> a little while ago and wrote hundreds of pages of documents about our family history and stuff. And so I have it all there. But one of the things I, I haven't had a chance to like really dig deep into it, but one, one of the things um, that... Uh, I discovered in that process was that one of my great great uncles was a government surveyor in and around Melbourne and, and um, through a lot of New Zealand. And I think, yeah, that that part of the story um, 
realizing the ways that surveyors were used and would have been used here on Wurundjeri. He would he was here on Wurundjeri country doing the same thing of surveying up land as a tool of the state um, in order to take it off people who have been killed on it um, and on unceded land. And realizing, yeah, that's that just like Richard Shaw, my that's not a story I grew up with. Um, I didn't grow up with any sense of the fact that my family had participated in something that caused so much grief um, for so many people. And uh, uh, yeah, like there's, yeah, lots of, kind of things you can say about that and kind of the function of guilt and shame and how helpful that is. Um, but at, at the very least, beginning by acknowledging that my family benefited um, historically from stories like this. Um, and that's something that I want my kids growing up knowing um, that there's more than one story to the to this land. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'll give you the last word in a sec, Shane, but um, I just wanted to say quickly that on Sunday um, at around this point, Shane asked, open, opened it up to the community and sort of talking to people about what comes up for you in light of this story. And a lot of people talked about how powerful and valuable it felt to have a story i mean this is obviously australian speaking to have a story from aotearoa that created a little bit of distance for them that mm. enabled them to to engage with it perhaps with with less defensiveness and mm. so it really cut through with greater power um mm. and yeah I, I was really struck by that too that there's something about it being a story from another place that enables in a sense, your defences are down, and so it really connects much more powerfully. Mm. So I think a lot of people were left thinking, "Yeah, this is this is our story too." And mm -hmm. what what do I need to do to to understand the history of my own family in relation to this, the history of the place where we meet as a community in relation to this? Um, but also, um, yeah, what does this mean for us as a as a community in terms mm. of? acts of resistance and being prophetic community um yeah yeah, well, yeah and even, even with that just kind of just what's possible of going mm. like I, like a lot of australians don't know that if, as, as dysfunctional as it was new zealand has a treaty <laughs> like yeah. new zealand was founded on a treaty um between maori and the state and the crown um and even in this process here reparations were a part of it nine the part of the apology was nine million dollars to mm. go into a trust to help harihaka continue as a community to have their needs met to continue to let it grow and be governed um and that this that all of that only happened because this story stuck around and because more and more new zealanders um and particularly more and more Pākehā mm. began to take on and agitate for the story to be told. Mm. You know, they were we were, you know Pākehā were open to listening to actually hearing the truth. To you know, and again, like this is not a, a Pākehā story. It, it's, it's present because Māori kept on refusing mm. bad apology. They can they continue to not let their story die. They continued, you know, this that started off as a story of two men, like two 
Māori prophets, but really it's the story of a resilient community that carried on after them, of the entire community that was formed. It was a way of life. It was a way of non-resistance. It was a, a flourishing, thriving community that outlasted the government's capacity to deny that they did anything wrong. And, yeah. and because of that bravery and that courage and that, um, yeah, incredible, like, refusal to shut up. They <laughs> just kept yeah. on saying, this needs to be acknowledged. This still hasn't been acknowledged. No, that's not That's not a real apology. That's not what we need. Yeah, yeah. We need to listen to the whole story first. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a resilient story of a resilient people. And, you know, again, in the discussion bit on Sunday, which I wish was recorded because that's always yeah. the best bit. But, um, yeah, there's a sense in which going like, yeah, you you are kind of immediately faced with overwhelm of going well what can i do as an individual in the face of the story but as a community and as communities we can keep on agitating for better possibilities you know like for, for treaty you know here in these lands it, it seems so far off and so impossible but we've seen in other places it's happened and yeah. that doesn't fix everything but it is a pathway to healing and a pathway to justice and again my spirituality growing up this wasn't a part of no. my spirituality. This wasn't a part of what Christianity was to me. So I am learning off to Māori prophets what it is to be, to be like Hehu Karaiti, um, Jesus Christ. Like that's, yeah, yeah I, I, and, I, and I think, yeah, just like I feel humbled, <laughs> yeah, getting to learn a story of, such innovation and courage and power and community and beauty um yeah it's it's been a real gift to me so yeah, yeah. great thanks shane <laughs>